0: Hello and welcome everybody to the Wednesday, July 12th edition of Memo by Gaia Legal. My name is Jackie and in today's episode, I'm talking about early intervention for infants and toddlers with either an in-fact diagnosed disability or with a suspected disability. So in today's episode, just going over some definitions, what this is, how do we access early intervention services, what type of services are available, and then just ending with some commentary about not just this, but also like the IEP, Individualized Education Program for Older Students, the strengths of these programs, of course, but also the limitations and what parents or caretakers or guardians should look out for if they invoke um, the assist under these, this act. So, what is early intervention under IDEA? So, under Part C, states must provide services to any child under three years of age who needs early intervention services. And the child can access these services if, number one, they have developmental delays as measured by appropriate diagnostic instruments. Um, Another reason why it's really important to have primary care visits as scheduled when you have a young child, because the doctor is looking out for these things. However, like even in my experience, I've gone to well, the best pediatricians in like large cities, Penn Medicine and um, Memorial Herman in Houston, which Houston is home to the world's largest medical center. There's a lot of great medical expertise in that city. And quite frankly, like sometimes the pediatricians, they're just going down their list. They're not, they're, they're relying on the parents' storytelling to kind of guide the conversation and they're going to look for glaring things but they only know what you tell them often so we have to make sure that as parents we're actually providing data it'd be nice if the doctor could guide us and teach us and educate us on how to collect the data and so on and so forth but we want to be collecting data in regular intervals on our children and by regular intervals I mean like every day every week every month whatever it is. Because when we just like pick and choose, cherry pick data points, we can fall prey to confirming our biases or confirming what we think it is, because that's what we're looking for. But if we just take the data in a steady, objective way every single day, so on and so forth, we can overcome those biases. So if they have delay as measured or there is a diagnosed physical or mental condition with a high probability resulting in developmental delay. So like autism, you can usually tell from the beginning, generally speaking, a child who has some sort of special needs, um, even as a baby, the child is a little bit off. And, and I don't mean off in a pejorative way, I just mean like the development is not the same as a quote, normally developing child. It's just different from the norm or for what's to be expected. So we have an infant or a toddler that's, Deviating from the norm, we want to see um, what kind of support that student needs, not because they're that child needs, not because they're deficient in any way. However, the reality of the situation is, is we live in a collective society, and it's just efficient that we have these rules that fit most people. And so, when we have kids, infants, adults, students who don't fit the mold exactly or who fall to the fringes. We want to make sure that we include them, which again like goes back to myself and put it away. But what like cancer three is all about is about inclusion and how can we come together in community. And this going to the pediatrician, participating in society allows us to kind of track these things early on. So uh, we want to make sure the purpose of early intervention be a family-centered, community-centered supports for students. When we are able to support our children from a young age, we can mitigate, remedy, if not altogether avoid um, severe issues moving forward. And by severe, I mean you can addiction, um, drug use, alcohol use, emotional emotional outbursts, emotional um, deviations from the norm. Not that those deviations are somehow, again, like bad or good, it's just, When we have people who cannot operate within the confines of a society, they're going to live an outsider life. And for some people, they want to live the outsider life, and that's okay, too. But We want to make sure that we're providing every opportunity at the front end so they can grow into kind of the people they were already, like, I guess, into wholeness without having to, like, fight against the man um, or the government or society so much. And I guess I'm, I'm like going around the circles because my mind is like, (laughs) my mind is like pushing back on what I'm saying. It's like, Jackie, why, why does everybody have to fit in? Why can't some people just be on the outside? Um, That's a good question. They don't necessarily have to be, but I think in my small collection of data, um, when I think, let's just talk from my own experience i have often been an outsider in schools. You know, I didn't, I didn't even sit at a lunch table by myself. I just skipped lunch altogether because it was that that painful. Because if you sat at the lunch table by yourself, you did door bullying and remarks and looks. So let me just skip lunch altogether and go hide out in the choral room or hide out in the band room so I could just be by myself, really be by myself. And I'm trying to think about that experience. I felt comfortable, quite frankly. You would think like that's a terrible thing, but I think because I had been like so bullied since fifth grade or so rejected from my community, I kind of, you know, in my younger years, wore it as a badge of honor. But I think I just become accustomed to it. And when you're an outsider, you can see things that people in the mix don't necessarily see. You can point out, um, you know, things to consider in a more objective way because you're not so tied in To the group, and maybe the group listens to you more because you are such a contrast to their daily whatever. So I don't know. I I I don't know what I think right now. Um, Why are we intervening with infants and toddlers with disabilities? Um, I think it goes. I'm trying to. I'm thinking on my feet. I think it goes to. The physical body, right? We want to make sure that the physical body is whole in the most optimum way. What they choose to do with that body is up to them, but we want to prevent. I think the, the quote that's coming in my mind is from Eckhart Tolle. In life, there's suffering, but there's also unnecessary suffering, suffering that we could have prevented if we didn't have so much ego or so much attachment to something. So I think that kind of sentiment applies here. We can have suffering things that just you know we are an outsider generally speaking that's how you're we born into this world if you believe in astrology if you see that as kind of like a mirror to our inner world okay we are born with just um, different placements that make us put us on the outside general society. however um, we don't want to push people outside society so much that it brings unnecessary suffering and then the, the, the example that comes to mind is, like, the Unabomber, right? I don't... I never spoke to him personally, but I remember, like, watching documentaries and, like, movies. I think there's a movie on him and such. He, like, lived in the woods, and he wrote this manifesto. And he was, like, so pushed to the outside of society, either through, like, experiments or whatever. His experiences he was so pushed to, to the edge that he found no other option but to invoke warfare on society and I think that's an example of unnecessary suffering because if someone were to sit down or someone would have connected with him in a meaningful way I think perhaps my hypothesis is that could have been prevented but sometimes these things like happen I'm not justifying them I'm just giving a hypothesis for the mental condition for the emotional condition of why these things happen like if you have a garden, it's just like a plant, an invasive plant, a you know, a plant is going to kill the other plants. It comes up as a warning to the owner, to the people, to the community, the hey, like something is out of balance. So when we see like school shootings, when we see um, individuals with mental health issues take out their frustration on the society because they have pushed too much to the edge, they take out the frustration on the society because the collective is now in their mind And is it probably valid in some ways? I mean, I've been there on the, on the um, outside. You feel so much pain from the mere existence of the collective. And then when you try to engage with them at like a lower level, because usually what happens is that the collective rejects you, but they're comfortable, they're fine. But as the collective continues to reject you, you're like, okay, you try to find ways to get in. You try to find ways to be included. And then even those ways, you're still pushed to the outside. So then you start thinking like, hey, like I'm just supposed to be on the outside. And people take that to the extreme, extreme, extreme when they don't have at least like one or two people that kind of connect them. So tying this back to early intervention, we want to identify these things uh, at the beginning. So we're not pushing people um, way outside of society. To the extent that they feel attacked by the existence of society itself so we have early intervention for these individuals to so include them as much as possible so they don't get to those extremes there i think I like came around and figured out what i wanted to say okay so what are the eligibility criteria for early intervention services um there's different from state to state differs but generally speaking birth up to three years of age and there's developmental delay or de- deficit in one or more of these areas. So number one, um, mental cognitive development. So they're not, they don't like connect with their environment. If you ever watch a baby, like they can connect with you. There's some babies that just like you can tell they're there, but like they're not there. Um, same with playing, same with learning. So even for babies, um, both my children. They were very intentional with the play, even though it's like baby play or just like a ball going in in a hole. They're very intentional and you can see the mind is working. However, uh, individuals, babies with developmental delays, the mind is not connecting necessarily with the thing. They might just do things haphazardly. So you can kind of see like what's going on. Uh, Number two, physical and motor development, including vision and hearing. So we all have vision and hearing tests in the hospital. Uh, One of the benefits of giving birth in the hospital, all those things are organized for you. And I'm sure like in home birthing or like alternative birthing centers, centers, sometimes by state law, they're required to do these things. But we just want to make sure if we're like giving birth in a non-traditional setting that you're still getting the tests and diagnostic um, measures that you would get in a traditional setting because a traditional setting has these measures in place uh, to because they've had way more case studies than you would have in your alternative working center. And that's just it just is what it is at this point. Uh, number three, communication development, limited sound use, limited response to speech, emotional social development, such as impaired attachment, self injurious behavior, and adaptive development, feeding difficulties. So it's interesting because I think about my son, um, but it's like weird when you're in the whole collective So when he gets really frustrated, he just like bangs his head on the floor. And he's always done this um, from day one. And that to me, self-injurious behavior, that's emotional, social development. He's like, bruises here? And then I had someone like, oh, like, that's just him being a boy. But then my gut says like, no, like, why? What is the what is the source for doing that? It's just. He feels so excluded. He's, he's also an Aquarius son. So this is why I'm concerned. So Aquarians are known to like be the outsider. Generally speaking, he's an Aquarius son of Pisces moon, which makes him very like emotional, spiritual. And then a Leo ascendant, um, the sign of the king wants to be in charge. That's how I, I mean, he's just a baby, but but just knowing his personality as it stands, like he wants what he wants when he wants it. And when he doesn't get what he wants, when he wants it, over time, that like results in self-injurious behavior. So it's just like thinking, which is like really rage, it's like anger, anger to the point where you just feel so detached from yourself that you want to injure yourself. So that's just my child. Um, does that fall into early intervention services? For me, and I'm speaking from my mothering lens, and from someone who does, I do respect the traditional healthcare system, but I'm very open to alternative approaches. I want you know the proper mix of both, whatever that may be. Sometimes it's completely one or completely the other, but I am open, opening to considering all options. So would I track this for early intervention? I think it's one of those things you keep data on. Uh, for me, I would keep data on when does it happen? I would look at diet. I would look at sleeping routines. I would look at kind of who's around. And for my son, like just knowing that, I know this happens when things are taken from him. Like, and I think that, and this is for me, so like, that's my fault as a mother because with my daughter, and here, here's here's a very motherly reflection. I'll just put this here for the record. But it's like, for my daughter, um, yeah, I see myself in her and with my experience and I want to be there um, to be very, very careful about my words and, and like choice and like, you know, making sure to offer like offer her, ask her questions, like listen to her, let her lead, sort of thing. Whereas my son, I think because of I've had a lot of traumatic experiences with men in my life in different forms where I personally feel like so much has been taken from me in different regards that I am less patient as a mother with just like removing something from his either environment, just putting him somewhere or moving him somewhere else um, without asking him and following his lead. So, and this is, you know, as my reflection, now he, when things are taken from him and he doesn't understand, his automatic response is to like get angry or to like whatever, take it from another person so I think, to even though he's still a baby, we can remedy this. We can reorient ourselves right now and for myself, just focusing on my action, making sure that every time I engage with him, I am patient and I ask him, like, Elijah, like, can we have um, the pen? Can I have the pen? Or, like, offering him something else. I just have pen and free. And I do this when I pick him up from school, right? So like sometimes I'll have something in his hand that I need or like that needs to go back to school and I'll offer him the key instead. It'd be like, oh, can we like trade or can we, can we, um you know, would you like the key instead? And nine times out of 10, he does it like and very happily, right? So that's just his personality. It's different from my daughter because she doesn't really because she's the first we never really had to share or we never had to like swap out things she could just do whatever because she's the first and then she was the only for a while but now there's two like if we only have for example one iPad, um you know gabby has her time and then he has his time and it's just different when there's two so that's you know something i need to work on as a mother i wouldn't classify it as a Emotional social development issue, however, you always have to be open. You always just have to track the data and see. So, next, what is the process of evaluating infants and toddlers for early intervention services? Um, Idea requires that a child receive a timely, comprehensive, multidisciplinary evaluation and assessment. The purposes of the evaluation and assessment are to find out the nature, number one, of the child's strength, delays, or difficulties, two, whether or not the child is eligible for early intervention services. And then number three, how the child functions in the five areas of development that I just listed, cognitive, physical, communication, social, emotional, and adaptive. So once we've seen that, okay, one of our infants or toddlers needs early intervention, some examples of early interventions that can be um, included in the plan, assistive technology, audiology, family training, counseling, home visits, health services, medical services, nursing care at the home, nutrition, Occupational therapy, physical therapy, psychological services, service coordination, social work services, special instruction, speech and language pathology, transportation related costs, and vision services. So, again, like for myself and my experience, um I've had not a huge amount of case studies with infants and toddlers. I can just speak as my experience as a mother with an infant and a toddler who've had special needs. Um, so, like for my daughter, she had eczema, which we we took care of for the most part. But I think because of her experience, she developed maybe some trauma or something around feeding. And I know this because my son is like fine with eating; you now he eats anything. It doesn't matter if you put it in front of him, he'll try it, he'll eat it. But my daughter is like very fearful of food. And when she was very young, um, as a baby, she broke out in eyes because we were trying to figure out why she had so much eczema, which at the time we thought was topicals, so but it was really a lot of her food. So she developed eczema um, as a result of food sensitivities, some food allergies. And she used to eat well at the beginning and then she just stopped. And then we were advised, oh, give her oat milk, not (laughs) knowing. She's like actually very, very allergic to oats. So when I gave her the oat milk, it was like immediate hives all over the body. And um, perhaps, you know, a benefit of that experience is that. She is very good at rejecting food that she will be allergic to. She doesn't even know her allergies; like she doesn't have a list. Like, oh, I'm allergic to eggs or milk, whatever. She doesn't have a list. But if you put that food in front of her, she will not touch it. She will not eat it. So it's like her mind has been trained to not trust food more than to trust food. And she gets very fearful. She does not eat the same thing over and over and over. So with her introducing new foods. Even as a toddler, it's like very, 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 very slow, and so we've been to the college, we've been to the primary care pediatrician, and then we're referred to a therapy, right? Like eating therapy, feeding therapy, and these are things. It's an emotional, social. Um, development, adaptive development, feeding difficulties, I guess. And I hate to say like feeding difficulties, because when you start speaking these words of her children, it's very Joel Osteen, but it's like feeding difficulties. No, actually her body is working exactly as it should. Her body is trying to reject foods that, um, that are going to injure her. That's not a difficulty. That's actually like, very. <laughs> that's, that's what we all should be doing, rejecting foods that are not good for us. Um, so if I were to rephrase that, it's more of a, it's a unique feeding need. Like it's if she needs, or, um, I can't even think of her word, but for me, it comes to like a unique need, a different need, a specialized need when it comes to her, her feeding habits. And maybe. Going on, it depends on the school environment, right? Like right now, I have a great school environment, and we can manage it without needing any extra support. If I felt like we were in a school environment where there need to be like a little bit more direction in terms of documentation and contracts and all of that, then we could we could explore this. But she's already a toddler, so it would track into an an IEP um, because she's almost in kindergarten, preschool, kindergarten, which is oh, i have a picture. Oh my goodness, my baby. Okay, anyway. So individual family service plan, IFSP is very like an individualized education plan. It's a contract between you and whoever, teachers, school, providers. Um, this is what's happening. These are the goals. This is the progress we want to see. Here's the data we're going to track. Um, here's the environments we're going to be in. Here's the environments we're not going to be in. It's basically like a business plan. Right? I, I do a lot of business. law. It's like a business plan or a contract plan for the care of the child. Um, here, IFSP is for toddlers. And then you enter into the school as an IEP, Individualized Education Plan. The meaning is very similar. You have all the stakeholders at the table um, at least once a year. And um, there's ongoing evaluation and assessment. And then there's transition services. Um, Again, like the IFSP will go and become the Individualized Education Program for preschoolers and like school students or you know students in the K-12 system. Also you can have IEPs in college as well. So that's all I have for today's episode. Um yeah I'm trying to think where are we right now? So right now the sun is at 20 degrees cancer. Uh tomorrow it will be at 21 degrees cancer. So my plan is to transition into this idea of what kind of ancestor do we want to be. And I had few ideas which episode I wrote this morning um talking about religious freedoms because kind of the transition between special needs including everybody and having differentiated spiritual religious practices for example what does that mean Jackie it means you know for example I grew up in a rural community and people here are generally conservative Christian um conservative Protestant Christian not even Catholic um not even Episcopalian when you go to the Episcopalian it's like oh my god that's too liberal um to Protestant and and because people are so agrarian connected to the earth, sometimes you can be like an outsider if you don't belong in one of those systems. Even in the public school, we had one public school and people generally went to Protestant churches, Methodist, Lutheran, mostly Methodist and uh, or independent. Um, I remember I went to a Presbyterian church. There so was already like, oh, she goes to the Presbyterian church. it, it really that's like, all like that? Um when you are in a small rural community. So sometimes that type of spiritual practice for someone who is an outsider, it can be very triggering. And then the outsider is required to find a spiritual practice that works for them. Um, Part of that, I think, is shown in a more macro scale with the relationship between the United States, Western civilization, and the tribal nations that exist here um, that are independent and sovereign, but also exist on what's within the United States borders um, vis-a-vis the remainder of the world. So what are the relationships between Native Americans in the present day and the United States government? Native Americans or the tribal in tribal communities, they are independent and sovereign in the United States government, but because again, like they were small in number relatively compared to the rest of the United States, there are some special agreements that are in place. Um, it's kind of the people that held out you know right now they're on reservation they're they were given their own land and there's a sad sad history behind all of that but we're not going to focus on that we're going to focus on what it is right now what it is and how we can move forward and again with like spiritual practice so for example the example um, that i wrote about during law school was with religious freedom <laughs> religious freedom in our supreme court is usually seen as one of the traditional religions of the world. So what happens when you have that value come up against religious freedom of um American, you know, people in in tribal, tribal communities that um use banned substances or controlled substances or absolutely prohibited substances in their religious worship ceremonies like peyote? Uh, What happens when they use eagle feathers? Um, Eagles are a protected species in the United States, Uh, and what happens if they use eagle feathers in their their ceremonies when there's clear prohibitions for anybody else to not, you know, collect these things. So, and sometimes, and I've seen this happen in business, uh, in a lot of business cases, where... When there's a group of people who don't want a business to come in that area or don't want someone to buy up the land or develop the land, like, for example, in the Tennessee Valley, a lot of times environmental groups will try to find an endangered species and to make an endangered species endangered so that the business company cannot build on that land. So it's a lot of times we just hope, oh, like... For the goodness of the earth and for, you know, respecting the earth as it is. We want to protect all animals and we value all animals' lives. No, even in the endangered species act, animals are being used as pawns in power plays between people. Develop the land, don't develop the land. Well, there's an endangered species. You can like really drain the resources of a company by declaring a piece of land, a wetland, because now you have to do all these tests. Um, we're finding an endangered species. So it is an important break on commercial development. And um yeah, so I was just thinking about trying to incorporate those ideas into more episode when we think about what kind of ancestor ancestors do we want to be, and then we'll just go from there. We're in the remainder of cancerous season, which is probably up to July 22-ish. So thank you all for tuning in and I will see you next time.